5G comes in a picture where you don't have to send the data all the way to the cloud. You don't have to invest time and money to install and digitize your factories in each and one by one, but instead install a 5G network capability to send that to the closest cell tower, use the Mac layer to process it and send it back. I think that is going to take off as 5G becomes more and more widely available and adopted in the next couple of years. That is going to take off. We're seeing that. We're already talking to customers. We're seeing this closely working with and partnering with these 5G companies. You are listening to the Beyond Buildings podcast, where we talk to innovative leaders on how they create optimal value in a smart world context. We combine strategy and technology talk to absorb reality, embrace uncertainty, and to go from path dependency to path creation. It's smart cities, it's smart buildings, it's data strategies, it's construction, it's real estate and industry 4.0, and most of all, it's smart people. And remember, it's the data you don't have that will change your life. With your host, the future shaper, the ecosystem architect, Nicholas Wern. Welcome to the Beyond Buildings podcast. And today we're talking to Sastri Maladi from Foghorn. Please, Sastri, go ahead. Thank you, Nicholas. I'm happy to be here. My name is uh, Sastri Maladi, co-founder and CTO of uh, Foghorn, a company based in headquartered here in Silicon Valley, Sunnyvale, California. Myself, along with David King, co-founded this about six years ago. But as far as my background, I have 30 plus years of technology background, starting from operating systems, networking, to applications, to JWE in the cloud, of course, now to edge computing all the way. I'm a passionate entrepreneur, both uh, been at big companies and small companies. Of course, big companies, I worked at um, initially IBM, Oracle, and eBay were leading their technology teams. And uh, in between, I've also co-founded uh, other companies like Spike Source with uh, Kleiner Perkins, which is a Reliance company. And then I've um, also co-founded the cell phone, my own self-funded um, company called Grid Computing. At that time, it was too soon for cloud. So they, everybody calls calling it cloud today. That's really what it was. And I'm um, having a blast at uh, Edge Computing, which is uh, really fun trying to work with these industrial companies and commercial companies. And obviously, building technologies are also at the forefront. Since last year, we've made significant progress in that space. I'm sure we'll be talking more about that. Perfect. Thank you so much. I took a peek on your LinkedIn profile before this, and I mean, it's super impressive. I'm actually working with data centers right now, so I think maybe we could start off with that. Are you doing anything with Foghorn related into data centers today? And if so, what would that be? Yeah, so data centers, we are beginning to explore in the energy management sector. We started off with um, school buildings and commercial buildings, office buildings. For example, we have now one of the large school districts that signed up with us where we are connecting to HVAC control systems with a multi-vendor BMS in a multi-school district, a multi-school building context, and being able to optimize the HVAC systems, aid handling units, chillers, and by multiple ways. One is to giving control to the school staff and uh, principals and so on for being able to exactly control and tell when do they want to turn on what. For example, let's say they've got a basketball game in the evening and uh, now they need to turn on the air conditioning on that, right? That's one part. The second part is Normally, it's not like we, 8 o'clock, the game starts, you want to turn on 8 o'clock, everything is going to be hunky-dory. It's not, right? So we use machine learning and edge AI to optimally calculate when do we actually need to start this equipment in order for it to reach the optimal temperature and humidity based on the desired conditions set forth. So that's one part. The second is proactively identifying faulty conditions of the equipment. Sometimes there's equipment, air handling units, chillers, HVAC system. Thermostats, these things don't behave necessarily the way you would expect it. 
but being able to proactively identify and then raise alerts to the specific technicians to go fix them. And then finally, dashboards to be able to actually see how much energy are they saving year over year, week over week, day over day by doing a lot of these things. That's how we started, but then we're quickly expanding into other spaces. Is this only BMS and BAS? How do you work with other stuff than the BMS, BS systems? You know, is it a holistic integration suite or is it mostly focused on yeah, building automation system and building management solution? The first thing is obviously integrating with a multi-vendor BMS building automation system is important, but we actually integrate with all of the equipment like energy meters, in, we call Inescopes or different types of brands that are out there, Venstars, and then the school equipment system. So we do all of that and provide this holistic dashboard for users to do that. In addition to what you mentioned, just being able to process in the live at the edge, what we actually do is the closed loop control, which is affecting and manipulating the BMS system to be able to do what you wanted it to do, right? That's how you actually save the energy. While traditionally we started with industrial background, manufacturing oil and gas and all of that, last year, of course, obviously because of COVID, manufacturing oil and gas slowed down a bit. Now we picked on this energy management, and then we have successfully been doing this in the school context. And um, since late last year, then we're beginning to explore two specific contexts, office commercial buildings and data centers. We've always looked at data centers in the past. We're using uh, thermal imaging for being able to identify the hotspots within how the equipment is being heated. And now, but that was just one part of it. Now that we have experience now actually connecting, manipulating the air conditioning unit, BMS systems, and so on, we are getting now further opportunity, especially in Europe, People are coming and asking us, hey, can you do the same thing in data center? We're beginning to explore that as a POC now. So I would expect by end of this year, we would also gain, we will have some solution both in the commercial buildings as well as in data center, in addition to a school building context type. Ultimately, Nicholas, at the end of the day, controlling the equipment itself is common across all of these three. What's really different about is the user interface. In the case of school, how the teachers interact with the system, how the school staff interacts is different from in the case of an office building, where who is the tenant, who is actually occupying it, what is their priority versus what's in a data center, who is the operator, are they trying to mostly look for heating and cooling, or are they trying to save energy, or are they trying to make sure equipment doesn't fail? Priorities are different for each person. So that's really where the user interface differs. Definitely the user interface differs. So you also cater to that, or is that an area where you partner up? I'm working well a lot with the digital twin space, where it's more about the 3D world, making a shared reality where it's actually the building, not even just the floor plans, but actually you have a scan environment, you turn that into BIM or into CAD, and then you populate that with the IoT sensors to create you know, a real-time connected digital twin so that any and all stakeholders that want to get access to data, turning that information, insight, action, to know about the impact that is necessary from their perspective, that's sort of like the digital twin play, right? When you're talking about dashboards, so how are you working in that area? Is it something that you provide yourself or is it something that you partner up with? Yeah, so let's break them up into two buckets. Dashboards for users to interact with, either request a system or change things or control things. Those dashboards we provide because that's our bread and butter. We provide that. Alerting, controlling and all of that. Now, we partnered with, at least initially, the context of school districts and potentially a lot more. We partnered with a company where they are the experts in energy calculation. How much carbon footprint have we actually reduced by saving this energy? How much energy year over year because they have access to all the billing systems and everything else? That's where we partnered with the company to have those kinds of dashboards. But the main dashboards around controlling the equipment, giving the user interface to change things, seeing it in real time, that's all provided by us. Perfect. 
How do you deliver that data? So you're working with this partner. What kind of API do you have? Do you have it from the cloud or do you also have it visible from the edge? I guess it's both. We have got our own UI dashboards and everything else. That's a real-time dashboard as things are happening at the edge. And if people can launch that dashboard from a browser and see that, obviously, right? Now, we have, even a school district, we have got lots of buildings, lots of schools across the district. So everybody's, people are not going to be able to log in or will not want to log into each and every individual edge to see what's going on there. So what we do is we send those insights from each of these individual endpoints, each of these individual buildings into a central persistent store, typically hosted in the cloud. And then we have got some dashboards on top of that too. In other words, if you are somebody at a high level, exec level, who just wants to see the summary of what's going on across the entire district, they would typically log into the central dashboard to see what's happening across, right? But if you're an individual school staff, principals, teachers, whoever wants to know specifically about one particular thing, they will just worry about that school, right? So we've got both sides to worry about. These are the tools that we supply. Now, if somebody wants to integrate our capabilities into their existing tools, we also expose APIs. I mean, if that's if they want to, it's RESTful APIs, obviously. So there is a at the edge side, we have an SDK if you want to integrate. On the cloud side, if you wanted to go build a new application, we expose the RESTful API where you can pull the same information if you want to integrate that. So both options exist. Typically, that level of deeper integration is only done by partners and integrators. You know, customers don't do it. Customers simply use it. How do you cater to the industry standards and taxonomies and ontologies like Brick Schema, Haystack, uh, Real Estate Core, for instance, these kind of things? Is that something that you are doing or plan to do in the future? Yeah, it's a mix of both. Like projects like Haystack and all of that, obviously we're paying attention. We're trying to see how much we can incorporate. I mean, those are standards and I've been doing standards for quite some time in many fields for a long time. They will take a long time for it to mature and everybody to adapt. So, but as far as the protocols, you mentioned BACnet, we can work with any like KMC, KMD, which is a legacy protocol, right? We can work with um, thermostats, which exhibit MQTT. Do we play in the standard space out there? Where most of these projects like Haystack or, you know, this the brick project that you talked about, those are all more about the asset metadata description, nomenclature, taxonomy, and things like that. And we try to pay attention, but we also have to make sure that the customers have actually configured it that way. They want to do it that way too. So which is why I would say while we're paying attention to things like Haystack, it's not quite there yet in terms of the actual implementation for a product. But the most important thing is to following the protocols, the data protocols, the customer specified data structures, and then we can incorporate that. So the short answer is really yes, we're paying attention, but we're also being pragmatic. Okay, so you're focusing more on the protocol side, which leads me to the ontologies, taxonomies. It's there for, you know, metadata tagging to hopefully make it easier for AI enablement at scale. So you spend, instead of 90% of the time with data cleaning and harmonization, et cetera, et cetera, you actually spend 10% of data cleaning, harmonization, tagging it up or getting the tags out, whatever, and then more time on value creation. So how would you enable others from your RESTful API, whether that is at, at the edge or from the cloud, to work with AI if you're not incorporating these industry taxonomies or standards? Do you see that that is a challenge? Or is the industry not there yet? Maybe that's the case as well. A couple of points, right? So I think the summary, one is about the standards about taxonomy, right? I wasn't necessarily saying we're not following that. I'll give you a simple example. If the customer has an existing building automation system or an equipment, they provide to say, look, I've configured my BMS like this. This is the taxonomy and the naming for my BMS system. Work with it. More often, what happens is they come back with that to say, look, 
connect to my system. Here is my taxonomy. Work with it, right? Now, we can't force them to say, look, no, I'm not going to work with your stuff. I'm going to change your thing. We can't do that. What I mean by we're paying attention to the taxonomy could be we would leverage that where we have flexibility to leverage that. We would work with what the customer wants in that. So that's really basically the pragmatic approach that I was talking about. For machine learning, what we're effectively saying is that most of our solutions, if you look at predictive maintenance, not just in the building context, manufacturing oil and gas is how we started it, right? Of course, now we're expanding into building space. People can build machine learning models using their own taxonomy and users if they want. And then we have this concept of what we call sensor discovery in our tool. So effectively, we're using a protocol. We discover what is the wire packets coming on the wire. And we can detect this. Oh, I see that. No, this is the hierarchy of the points you're using. This is the taxonomy you're using. We present the discovered sensors. And then if they upload a machine learning model or use our APIs to upload it, now we already know what is the names of the sensors, the data structure that's coming in. Then we can correlate to the machine learning model. So there is absolutely no problem People who are following the taxonomy or people who want to upload that using the taxonomy, it'll work right out of the box. It's only when we are building a solution for a customer and the customer says, this is what I've got, work with what I have, that's what we have to deal with. I think that's interesting. So when you say sensor discovery, okay, so you come into like a manufacturing plant or a factory then, or a building that's not necessarily smart, it's a building, maybe you turn it into a smart building, right? And then you don't have basically any information. So the system integrator or whatever says, okay, please connect my building, not necessarily to the cloud, that's what everyone says, but okay, connect my building, make it smarter. So what is that process then? Just to answer, we are a pure software company. However, we have lots of partnerships with hardware you know, manufacturers like Dell. Dell is an investor in us. And... Um, HP, Intel, Advantech, Cisco, a number of these hardware guys. So in many cases, the customer says that I have an existing hardware, install your software on it, we will do that. In some cases, customers that I don't have an existing hardware, help me bring the hardware, recommend, or better yet, just procure hardware for me and install it. We've got partners, investors that have done that. We will play to what the customer wants. If they have an existing hardware, we leverage that. If they don't, then we give our own. Coming back to your question, once we install the software, whether it's our hardware, their hardware, doesn't matter. Once we install the software, right, we try to discover it. Now, what happens typically, Nicholas, is that take a backnet-based billing system as an example. There is this notion of a point hierarchy, right? Now, sometimes when they configure the building system, they may not have configured it to say, here is the taxonomy I'm following, for example. Here is the building, here is a zone, here is a room. That's a problem. Now, to solve that problem, what we do is this IP MVP certification, right? This is energy experts who are actually building automation experts. They go in there. This is our partner who does that. They go into the building. They actually do the IP MVP analysis and they come up and say, look, here are the discovered points. That's great. But here is actually what it means. This is the building. This is a zone. This is a handle. This is a chiller, whatever, right? They construct that hierarchy for us and say, yeah, here is the hierarchy. Now you map it, whatever you discover, map it according to this hierarchy. And then we go from there. I think that's sort of pretty classic because especially in the US compared to Sweden or compared to Europe, maybe not the whole of Europe, Germany is pretty far ahead when it comes to backnet. In Sweden, we have Modbus, the Modbus layer. You've probably seen that more industrial setting, right? And I think that's where the problem is with tag lists. And it's very, very difficult to get that you know, information out, right? With backnet, you have, at least you're getting the data out. It's pretty easy to do like a point discovery, point scan, you're getting something out. Then most of the time, you're not necessarily sure where it is in the building, and then you have to have these discussions, right? So what are the drivers there? Is it sustainability? I think you heard something about that, you know, CO2 stuff. Or is it the energy side? Is it the maintenance aspect? Is this the productivity and well-being because it's schools? 
I mean, what do you see? What are the discussions that you see in wanting to make these investments and making it like building smarter? There are really three drivers, right? Uh, first and foremost, obviously, cutting the utility bills, right? Energy savings. Second is convenience factor, convenience factor for the staff. Right? So a lot of the times they say, oh, I've got, uh, oh, there is something coming in today. There is a hurricane coming in. There is something else happening. I need to shut off the school, right? They have to go call a technician, which is impossible to do in the last minute. Otherwise, also, like, for example, I've got a science lab project that's scheduled today, and it's a last-minute thing. I need this uh, gym or auditorium to be opened up, and I need to control that. And there's no way to do that because the BMS is already programmed not to do that. So they need a way to control that, right? It's a convenience factor. And finally, the third one is, of course, sustainability, the carbon footprint reduction. But these are really the primary drivers. Cutting down the bills, which is energy savings, and convenience factor, and third is um, environmental uh, health, which is cutting down the carbon footprint. Do you know about the 330-300 rule? Three, $3 per square feet is what you spend on energy. No one really cares. Of course, everyone cares, you know, about saving 10%, but like it's 30 cents of $3, right? You say like, okay, we're going to save 10% of our energy bill. And then it's like $30 for maintenance. But then what everyone is moving towards or trying to find out is the well-being productivity aspects, like the human aspect. You mentioned it a little bit, you know, with the convenience aspect for people, but it's more, especially now with COVID, you know, bringing people back to buildings, productivity, well-being, do we trust the building, indoor air quality is, of course, huge when it comes to IoT, those kind of things, right? But then it's the 330, 300, 3000 rule as well. It's basically the ability to, you know, create applications, the app store concept for buildings, future-ready facilities, to be able to either make money out of it or create new business models. So you have like the save money, more money, and new money concept. You're saying that you don't see that that much, especially like the human aspects in these kind of things. You do that in a commercial building, right? Because we are talking about the school building. The school building, it's not like you're lending that or you're, there's no concept of a multiple tenants within a school and things like that. But which is why they're mainly worried about energy savings, convenience, and carbon footprint. But when you get to commercial buildings, there is a building owner operator concept and the tenant concept, right? When you have commercial building, so the building owner and operator is worried about how to give of these aspects that you talked about the tenant. The tenant is worried about how do I reduce my bills too? So depending on who you're talking to, they worry about is different. But certainly making this more modern, reducing the cost per square foot, that comes more in the context of a commercial building, less so in school building. Just to comment on that, I think it's still even more relevant almost when you have the schools. If you focus on productivity and well-being, productivity means for the teachers with sick days, all these kind of things, they're not coming home with headaches or taking sick leaves or whatever that is as well as the focus or the attention level of the students. If you're looking at it, you know, from a national perspective, because you want the students to be great students, learn a lot and not, you know, have headaches. So I think like from a national productivity play, I think it makes a lot of sense to also focus on those aspects, to be honest. I agree with you on that. But I think the way, unfortunately, they're trying to deal with it right now is to say, you know, what, we don't know when they're going to turn off, when, what they need when, just turn on the whole thing all the time. That's, yeah, that's yeah, how yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it brings back to the point that you should have a, a system that can cater to the unknowns, right? If someone wants to do this, then yes, your system can adhere to that. Someone can buy sensors and they can bring it into the fold of Foghorn and not sending the data to the cloud, but actually manage this from an edge perspective, which is sort of what I've been talking about the last couple of years as well anyway. So going back to data centers, then what are the drivers that you see in this space? And you said like something about Europe. 
the driver that's coming out from this partner in Europe and other places is less about, I want to find the heat map about where my equipment is getting heated up versus not, but more about how do I modernize and optimize my data center from an energy consumption standpoint? That is a driver we want to play to, right? So this is the same thing where we're talking to, okay, now we're talking the same language. Let's connect to this equipment. Let's connect to sensors. Let's do this machine learning program to optimize to say, what actually makes sense? Where is the energy consumption going? Is this going at the right place or is it going the wrong place? Sometimes we also optimize based on demand charges. You know how the utility companies work, right? During the peak demand times, they charge you more. Now, if you're actually unoptimally running the HVAC system in a way that you're actually using more energy during peak time, we can also optimize that too. So fundamental driver now we're after would be how do we save energy? That's the main driver. All these other drivers are peripheral at this point, which is how is my heat map? How is this? How is that? And all of that. That's really why we think having seen what we've seen in school districts, now we have also done a couple of POCs in the commercial buildings. So now we're beginning to build that solution. Then we think now it's the time to get into the data center to also do the energy savings there. I think this is really interesting, actually, because like I'm moving away from energy savings. I think that's sort of like done and dusted, but of course it's not. And I think like especially for data centers that are using a lot of energy, electricity, all these kind of things to be able to match up. But how do you do that? Making the data centers aware of what they need to be aware of, basically. How do you do that? So first and foremost, obviously, this is in fact what we had initially done and shown this to the customer, which is to say, make them aware, make it visible to them as to what's going on. That's the first step to identify if there is in fact a problem, right? Because we don't know if there is actually a problem or not. First, we need to understand if there is a problem, right? The first thing would be to connect to the equipment because of our ability to identify what we call energy conservation measures and be able to proactively identify, hey, is this equipment faulty? Is this HVAC system faulty? Is it air handling operating properly? Is this overheating? Is it overcooling? We can find all of that. Now, if there are low-hanging fruits like that, we can easily visualize and show them, hey, this is actually what's happening out there. Maybe this is what you can save. Now, if you've got a perfectly modern data center, everything is optimized, everything is wonderful, there's really nothing to do there, there you go. Well, there's really nothing to save here. You got everything perfect, right? That's great. But you know, because we're not trying to go find a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We're trying to find a customer says, and by the way, energy savings, I'm surprised to hear that. Energy savings is still a major concern for all of these building owner operators, whether because that's a significant amount of their costs, which utility bills a significant cost, right? They're trying to see if they're optimally running it or there is something that they can optimize. Obviously, if they're only saving them a couple of percent or 5%, nobody bothers, right? We even, we're not bothered. You know, if it's a 5% savings, even there's not a big deal, right? You want to see, especially in the case of schools and everything, the example we talked about, we're talking about double digit, bigger percentages of uh, savings. If it is a single digit percentage, you can question that, whether it's useful or not. Yeah. I think like the energy savings part comes with the territory of all of a smart building that you're able to do these kind of things. But I think like the discussions are, especially now during COVID, I think it's a moot point. No one is in the facilities. Everyone is, you know, working from home, studying from home or doesn't really matter. And it's more about, you know, bringing people back to the building. It's pretty interesting. But going back to you were at eBay, you were at these kind of companies. There has to be a difference coming from that side, fast moving data, event streaming, architecture, hopefully, possibly, and then going into the smart building space. What is the difference? How have you managed to survive these last five years? Because it has to be sort of a, a bit of a clash, right? Yeah, it's a good point. That's how we started this, right? So you're right. All my background, a lot of it, as I said, fast moving data, big data processing applications, networking, cloud, and all of that. Now, what we actually started building at Foghan was 
exactly that in memory stream processing in just a couple of megabytes. How do you do that? That's the engine we built, right? So that's the, where we have several patents granted, including machine learning. We call this edification. How do you edify a machine learning model developed to run in a cloud-like setting to be able to optimally run in a small footprint devices and all of that, right? That's what we actually built. Now that we have that basic foundation taken care of, which obviously leveraging my experience in doing in the past, as well as, of course, the team makes a difference. I've heard excellent team of people to go build all of that. Now that we built the platform, initially, first four or five years, we were actually going to customers and say, look, we have this great platform, runs really, really fast. You've got analytics, AI, streaming, and everything else. That's great. But what ended up happening was every customer we walk into, like Stanley Black & Decker, we walk into GE, we walk into Bosch, we walk into Procter & Gamble, you name it, all of these guys. That's actually wonderful. You know what? I don't have anybody who can do this stuff. I have this problem. I, my machine is producing defective parts, or I've got a machine downtime, or I've got a scrap that's costing me millions of dollars. Can you help reduce that, right? We have shown them by building the use cases on top of our platform ourselves, showing them, look, this is how you can save it, right? But we've been doing that as a startup. You have to do that. We did that for the first four years. And then we realized, hey, look, this is not going to scale. We can't keep doing that because we cannot go to every customer and keep building this stuff for themselves. We engaged SIs, which sometimes uh, they're great. Sometimes they are under the same issue too. So then what we decided was, well, this is not the way to scale up. The way to scale up is to go build what we call repeatable out-of-the-box solution, meaning that I don't have to go to every customer and say, look, tell me your problem, tell me this, tell me that, and I'll try to go build something for you, right? We can't do that. So we identified those till date in the last 12 months, identified based on our experience working with these customers, five different out-of-the-box solutions. Flare monitoring, carbon footprint for oil and gas, basic and advanced. I'll be happy to talk more about that. Safety, worker safety in both the plant and manufacturing environment. Asset health monitoring, if you have a rotating equipment, compressor, pump, valve, header machine, whatever. How do you do anomaly detection? How do you do failure condition detection on that? And then health monitoring, especially with COVID last year, we actually leveraged our own platform and built a health monitoring solution for actually identifying elevated body temperature, if somebody's wearing a mask or not. You can do that through computer vision detection, machine learning and all of that, and cost detection and so on. But now, since last year, we've been working on this energy solution now we're beginning to wrap that up as, hey, we're going to create this out-of-the-box energy solution for three different kinds because every building is not the same. If you have school context, this is the out-of-the-box energy solution for you. And if you're in a commercial building context, this is the solution for you. If you're in a data center, if uh, that actually works out and there are significant savings, this is the solution for you, right? That's kind of how we're going to approach it as opposed to doing a one-offs with each of these different customers. So you found that, you built the use cases, and then you thought, okay, scalability. I don't know if you read the book, How to Compete in the Age of AI. It's fantastic. I love it. It's one of the best books that I've ever read. They talk about the digital business model, digital operating model, and the only limitation should be computing power, right? And I think that you're there when it comes to the actual software foundation to some extent. Am I right? Yeah, the basic foundation is there. That's what we focused on the first four years. Then we were trying to find what is the right killer use case for this actually customer scare. We found a lot. And then we said, you know what, what is most common repeatable? And then we settled down initially on this file. Let's get these use cases exactly and then scale them up to land and expand with the customers. But going back to that point, you said, okay, you hinted that 
the organizations having these problems, they're not necessarily ready to have the AI teams there. They didn't know how to interact or engage with your product. You solved a lot of problems potentially, but they didn't have like the necessary manpower or woman power to actually you know to work with that. So then they asked you, okay, can't you do this? Then you did it, right? So the question is right now, when it comes to both organizations, do they have AI teams? How are they working with this at scale? That's the question number one, followed by the systems, the structure of the data. You have like unstructured data, semi-structured data, and maybe structured data. What do you think they're in this space? Is there a digital maturity in organizations and in companies today? Or are we still in the data dark ages? Are we waiting for this information renaissance that everyone is hoping for, the big data promise, IoT, et cetera, et cetera? Where are we in the scheme of things? So first and foremost, the readiness of these companies, enterprises, right? It's mixed. I'll give you some examples. Like there are some big companies like Procter & Gamble, for example, right? They've got resources. In fact, they were one of the few customers that tell us, hey, look, I don't need to build anything for me. Give me your platform, tell me how to use it, and I'm going to go. They've actually built extremely cool use cases on top, and which I can't go into details, but leveraging our platform too, right? But you don't find very many of those customers. A lot of those customers will say, even if they have the capability and the resources, they just don't have the bandwidth to go do that, which is why we went down this path. Like Stanley Black & Decker. Stanley Black & Decker is a huge big company too, but they engaged us to not only get our platform, but also to build their solutions too, right? And we can do that. This is the yardstick that we use most of the time we walk into the customer. We have learned this in the last five, six years, right? The hard way, which is to say the person who has got the budget willing to write the check, is that person or is that team aligned with the actual people that are on the ground? What is their problem? Are they aligned? So most often what happens is the person who's ready to write a check will say, you know what? I'm going to write this check to Foghound. Let's go put their solution here. But you walk into a factory floor and the guy says, you know, what problem? What are you talking about? Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There is a friction between the time, right? Now, now, we don't want to get caught up between the two, right? So most of the time, what we try to do is, hey, guys, we are not here to do science experiments. We're not interested in that. If you have a real business problem, if your business team and the technical team and the operators are all aligned that there is a business problem to solve here, tell us what is that business problem you want to solve? If that is a problem that we have a solution for, we will engage. If that's a problem for which we do not have a solution for, let's not engage. Let's not waste each other's time, right? I know it's easier said than done, but we have to communicate this. I can hear that you learned this the hard way. I can definitely hear that because I've been down this road too many times. I hope I've learned by now, but I mean, I've been down this road a couple of times. On a side note, we talked to ABB Robotics a couple of weeks ago. I talked to someone that was the body in white in manufacturing, right? The welding process, uh, getting data out of you know these robots, and then being able to compare that with the MES system, the PLCs, robots, ERP systems, to actually get that holistic picture, right? So I asked a guy who was like body in white expert, manufacturing expert for 30 years, had actually been working at ABB for quite some time. And then he said like, yeah, they're all about the vision, the future, ecosystem enablement. That's the road that they want to take. Talk to another guy who works uh, with robot staffing. Pretty cool stuff, you know? So instead of people staffing them out to factories, he's hiring out or like lending out robots instead to automate the stuff for people so that he can do this thing safer. So basically he said the other way around. No, no, no. Maybe like the visionary stuff or like the innovation team of ABB. Yeah, they want to do ecosystem enable, but that's like 0.1%. The 99.9 whatever percent, they just want to sell robots because that's their bread and butter. So like I understand that difference and it's very, very difficult to know 
to cater to them. So I really like the advice having these aligned operations, sales, technology team, C-suite to get them on the basis to actually have that defined first. Or, but is that what you do? Or do you also help them in that aspect? Do you help them to get over the threshold? Certainly we do. If we see an opportunity, you know, obviously if we see that we actually see that, hey, you actually have a problem. Maybe you're not able to communicate or not to convince each other, right? We can certainly help them on that, right? But we certainly do that. Obviously, it's in our interest if there is a real problem to solve, so we get the deal. And it's a customer's interest to make sure and all of that. But the cool thing about this whole exercise that we normally go through in the first couple of meetings with the customer is to quickly identify, is there a real problem? Do we actually know what needs to be solved? You know what? Customers will also cooperate. Here is why. Because they're also getting to understand is that, look, hey, these guys are real. They actually want to find out if we have a real problem or they're just not trying to sell us anything. They're trying to find out if something is real, right? I think they also really well on both sides. And that's at least we get to have clarity. The biggest thing, getting back to your second point, is data, right? Let's say we get past this problem about, yes, there is a business problem. Yes, we got to solve. Yes, this is the problem. We got. Now the question is, where is the data? <laughs> Who owns it? What structure is it? Exactly, right? Because that's the other thing too. So a lot of the times we ask him, hey, do you have existing census? Do you have existing data that you're collecting? Is there, what do you have right now, right? But that comes as a second conversation, not as a first conversation, but as a second conversation. Well, that's when we, most of the time we find out that's something technical, we can solve it, right? If it is more a operational a collaboration issue that they have to obviously understand that. So we'll say sometimes they'll say, you know what? Yes, I have a SCADA system. I have a SCADA network, but this network doesn't talk to that network. I've got this Oracle database. I put this MES system data there. You know, whatever they say, right? That's when we sit down to say, look, okay, let's sit down with you, help you identify, first find out what you got. Is there enough value in what you have? And then we have some tools like something called EDA, Exploratory Data Analysis, to identify based on the historical data that they've collected. Is there enough that the data is telling you there is some information in there or not? If there isn't, then we'll go back and say, look, it looks like you don't have enough in the data set for us to be able to figure out what's going on there. We have two choices, either install the relational sensors that we recommend you, or maybe put a video camera or put a vibration sensor, put this or put that. And then on the other hand, if there is enough information, okay, wonderful. The only issue we've got is connectivity. Let's figure out how to connect to that. To that point, I can't remember even who I talked to about this, but capturing the human element in this, right? Because if you go back to especially legacy factories or like all factories that exist, you know, even if you have the data that exists in the systems, that was a great point. What about the data that resides in the people that are working with these processes? Because that's not necessarily, from my perspective, documented that well. There's usually these people that have, you know, 30 years experience either about the whole factory or about key processes. Is that something that you also engage with or is that also where you partner up to get that knowledge capture? Yeah, so this is what we call the tribal knowledge. We call them, hey, look, you have this tribal knowledge in your head, and sometimes it's not in your data. So normally when we're building a machine learning model or putting a solution that we're engaging with them, we typically visit a factory or at least on a phone call, try to talk to these operators to say, what have they seen? What do they think is actually might be going on there? We try to incorporate that as a feedback loop into our model development process. We absolutely need their tribal knowledge to be incorporated into the model because we don't want to reinvent the wheel. The whole idea of doing that so that in future, when next person comes along in the factory floor, they don't need to necessarily remember what happened in the past. Hopefully the system is telling them that this is what it means when that happened. 
I think that's important. I think like I've heard that from factories here and also someone talking to people in Japan. It's not green field, it's a brown field. And that was their main problem. You have ABB or whatever coming in and say, we're going to do a new body in white. That costs, you know, 250 million or whatever that is. And then they say, but we can't guarantee that it's going to be better than the one you have today. Okay, how come? Well, we don't know how these things work. You work with directed components, the legacy systems all around, and we can't really know how to do this. Have you heard that as well, that even the modern stuff, it's not as great as the streamlined processes that has been defined, very static or very compact, but it's better than what something new can do? It's not quite exactly like that. But what I do hear concerns from customers from time to time is, how do you know that after doing all of this stuff, you're actually going to save the things, right? It's a valid question. They do ask that, you know, many times we hear that. So to counter that, our answer is always going to be, which is we found it to be successful, is let's do a pilot. We don't have to convince you. You don't have to convince us. We're getting in there. We think that it's going to be solved. Let's get into a pilot and have the contract in such a way that if the pilot is successful, you're actually seeing the savings, we'll move forward. If the pilot is such that you're not seeing the savings as expected, maybe you don't move forward, right? So you can't say no to that. Neither party can say no to that. Exactly, because they're looking to find a solution anyway. So that brings you know, to the next topic, a little bit about the hype stuff that you see out there, right? Digital twins. You know, that's my uh, passion of driving the digital twin consortium in Europe when it comes to infrastructure. I'm sort of taking lead on interoperable lifecycle digital twins for manufacturing over the U.S. stuff, engaging in a lot of different companies in this area, right? But what do you see in that space? Are you doing anything with digital twins? When I say digital twins, I also mean, you know, the visual component combined with what you're doing in terms of data integration. And again, like the road to AI enablement at scale. So that's where like, the ontologies come in, from my opinion, at least. Right. The short answer really is that the definition, frankly, Nicholas, has changed so much of the digital twin in the last few years. When we started six years ago with GE, with Predicts, then they initially started with a digital twin. He was an investor. We integrated our stuff into Predicts and everything else. Their definition at that time was really reconstruct and create an asset definition, edit metadata asset definition in a digital twin in the cloud, and then process it from there, right? Now, what we were always saying is that, hey, no, you don't need to really send all of the data there to construct your digital twin. Integrate, we had come up with this predicts edge where we integrated our stuff and then process it, derive the insights, and then send some information to the cloud to represent the asset, right? So you can find the models and everything else. In that context, yes, we are obviously supporting and playing digital twin. You can visualize both in the cloud as well as the edge, both in real time, what's happening at the edge, as well as in the cloud, a persisted insights across your multiple sites too. So the pragmatic definition of that digital twin, we absolutely are doing that. We're just not actively promoting the term digital twin because at least what we find is that there is no universal understanding when people use the term right now. This is exactly what no, it's the opposite. Just like how fog computing started when open fog, we did this standard stuff in open fog and many things too. Everybody started using their own definition of what is fog computing, what is this? And you know what, let's not use the term anymore. It's confusing everybody. So it's the same thing. I like that a lot. I started with IoT and they're talking to smart building or like building professionals, building automation professionals. You can do anything, right? We don't want to do anything. You know, what is IoT? And then you have to go into the description of what that is. It's exactly the same with digital twins. So I really like that answer because, again, like just focusing on the problems. I like the way that you're telling, you know, like start with a proof of concept, de-risking these kind of things. In regards to what I'm seeing here as well, is the private cloud stuff and 5G. So again, like the, the, a little bit of the hype stuff, is that's what you're seeing as well with these private cloud deployments? And how does 5G play into this? 
and maybe a little bit about network slicing uh, to sprinkle some stuff on top. We're obviously working very closely with all the major telcos with their Mac layers, integrating our edge into their Mac layer with 5G, right? Now, 5G, granted, there is a bit of a hype for sure because it's not quite ready yet completely, right? But where it definitely will help because we're closely working with, as I said, all the major telcos. So if you look at industrial companies, right? Manufacturing plants, oil and gas and all of that. Traditionally, a lot of the bigger already digitized companies already have installed industrial ethernet. For example, they have scatter systems, networks, connect to the sensors. And for us, it's easy for us to go into those plants and put a gateway box or work in their existing PLC. Look, I'm going to process it, apply machine learning, do this and save you money and all of that. That's wonderful. But there is more than 50% of these companies do not have yet digitized their factories and all of that. This is where this 5G companies and telcos are coming in and saying, we see the traction. They say, look, you don't need to spend money and time to install this industrial ethernet. But instead, don't even put any gateway or network and try to do or spend all of that. Use 5G to send this sensor data into a cell station, cell tower, which is closest to you using the low latency 5G network. And then in the Mac layer, where put Fargan into Edge or any, that's what we obviously we are advocating, but they can do anything else they want there. And then process it there and then send the results back there. So in other words, 5G comes in a picture where you don't have to send the data all the way to the cloud. You don't have to invest time and money to install and digitize your factories in each and one by one, but instead install a 5G network capability to send that to the closest cell tower, use the Mac layer to process it and send it back. I think that is going to take off as 5G becomes more and more widely available and adopted in the next couple of years. That is going to take off. We're seeing that. We're already talking to customers. We're seeing this closely working with and partnering with these 5G companies. I think that's very interesting. I've never sort of thought about it that way, that they're leapfrogging then. And exactly what you said, right? You're coming in under the same budget as in the digitization budget or whatever that is, but you're just changing instead of industrial ethernet or like these kind of things, you're changing it to 5G. I love that actually. The question there is when you're saying like they have the cell towers or like you're doing this stuff on the edge, what about, you know, the high compute stuff, like not the lightweight footprints to massage, you know, data in the sensor level or at the edge edge? but actually doing it in no more on-prem with like the private cloud stuff in these data centers where you need some compute power to do these things as well? Or is that not needed? Yes, it is needed. But if you actually think about the Mac layer, these uh, cell tower stations out there, you should see the types of devices they are installing it is almost like a, an on-prem data center type, 98 core with a 100 core box, 256 core, 100 GB boxes. Those are very, very powerful computers out there, right? Now, if you wanted to create Kubernetes, a managed cluster of these edge devices, they can do that too. It's almost like a mini data center if you think about it. That is that powerful. Now, of course, the Microsofts of the world are also moving there, what they call it the Azure Stack Edge, where it's almost a mini data center. They sell you this huge box, which is a $100,000 box, which you can put it in local, closer to where you are, and they're calling it a local mini data center too. The bottom line really, Nicholas, is that as long as connectivity is solved, compute power is not the issue. Once you go out of your plant and you have a lot of options at your end, whether you want to put a small device, with many of them distribute them, or you want to put one bigger device and put everything on that device, you have so many options available to you. Exactly. I don't disagree. And I think like, if you know what problem to solve, if you know sort of what the technology that is out there, then when you have a modern data strategy, again, like smart buildings or to building segment, everything is about local control. Sending data to the cloud, I don't believe in that for a second because it should go to the local control first 
that is shooting a triage, and then whatever sends up from a Tesla play. Basically, that's how I see it. So in a Tesla car, you don't have them you know, just connected to the cloud and you have the intelligence in the cloud. A lot of intelligence resides in the car, right? We have a partnership that we're working with Porsche. We actually put our software in the Porsche cars, the newer cars, and a couple of different use cases. One is more around security by installing these video cameras in the rear view But more importantly, we actually put it on the ECU of the car. We actually put, they developed their own Python-based model. We edified it. We actually put our platform and ran it in the inside the ECU to optimize the cruise control behavior and things like that. I can't talk more details about that, but we are certainly doing stuff there too. But obviously, just like Tesla is also investing a lot of time and we might actually do something with them too, who knows? But there is a lot to begin. If you look at the GM OnStar, when GM OnStar started whatever decade ago, right? Can you imagine... A telemetry data from the car vehicle going all the way to the cloud, nobody's going to pay for that. I mean, no, exactly, just- exactly. Yeah. If you go to smart building, that has been that play, which is not leapfrogging. It's not going where the edge is or where distributing intelligence is. It's going back in time to 10, 15 years and say, okay, now the next step for us is taking to industrial ethernet or to take the building to the cloud, right? That's why I've been a fan of your solutions or like Foghorn ever since in the beginning, when you were started, when you're trying to get this done, because that's also when I sort of started with uh, IoT space and buildings. And I really liked, because I did the Venn diagram of where you were and how that company that I was working for were and all these kind of things. But okay, so the final words, what should that be? AI, IoT, Edge can cover a lot of ground, a lot of buzzwords, a lot of ground out there. Most common thing, you got to narrow down the scope, identify a problem, and then apply the technology there, right? And we, for Fogon, for example, chose to focus on two main sectors. One is smart industrials, as we call. Smart industrials is manufacturing oil and gas, right? And the second is the smart infrastructure, which is where the buildings comes into picture. Now, we will, again, go after where there is enough value for the customer. At the end of the day, it has to have value for the customer. If that value is saving, so be it. If that value is convenient, so be it. If the value is sustainability, so be it. We will go with whatever is the driver for the customer and we will go after those solutions. But I think the key is to find a business problem. And this market is only going to grow. This is just the beginning tip of the year. This is going to go significantly in the coming years. Fantastic, Sastri. I think we could talk about this forever and hopefully we shall as well, both directly and indirectly. Thanks so much. And how could people find you? They can send info at foghunt.io so that messages come in. If they want to specifically reach out to me, they can contact me on LinkedIn. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Nice talking to you. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Beyond Buildings podcast. Like, comment and subscribe and share the show with your network. Thanks again from your host, the smart world architect, Nicholas Wern.